You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 11th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. Evan! Jay is still away this week, but she will be back next week. I noticed Jay's back. And Jay's back, yep. I'm back. Guys, I'm so busy with my day job, you have no idea. Well, we have a little bit of an idea. We didn't see you last week. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But I did have time. Bob and I actually had time this weekend to go on a, um, we went on like a couple's wine van cruise type of thing. We rented a 10-passenger van. We drove around local Connecticut wineries, and we had a great time. Yeah, except for the wine. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Wine's not your thing, Bob, is it? Yeah. It was more about the company, you know, and we brought yeah, well, it. certainly lunch. was. But, man, the, so one of the wineries we went to had some pseudoscience, and it was interesting. Just one? I, yeah. I mean, this was the, the one of the ones we went to. We were getting a hard pitch the whole time, and it was revolving around all the pseudoscience. One, he started talking to us about antioxidants and how you know his wine actually is healthy for you to drink. On some level, the antioxidants will help you not age as much as you're aging right now. Yeah. That's what, that's what was communicated. So, And then he was getting into organic farming and that they're, they're right now they're testing organic farming and he's talking about the chemicals and then someone else that was not with us that was there sampling wine said, oh, does the organic farming that you're doing, is the yield bigger? And he turns to the guy, and I thought they were going to get into like a conversation about how everything about organic is better, but he turns to the guy and goes, no. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> like, okay. And, and, you know, and I'm like, I'm starting to review facts in my head, you know, like asking him, well, you know, can you tell me about the chemicals? You know, and why, why are they considered organic? You know, what chemicals are you using on the non-organic? What's the difference? You know, I wanted to kind of like to start asking questions to get the guy you know, rolling out some facts so that I could use those facts later in the conversation. Then I'm like, nope, I'm not doing any of this. I'm not here to be a skeptic. I'm here to, you know, test wine. So then he was also talking about how he produces a wine that is sulfite free. He was saying that sulfite's essentially something that everybody doesn't want in the wine, but it's in most wine that's produced. And if you do a little research on sulfites, you'll find that there's no real evidence that it causes headaches, complaints that you'll typically hear is that people get headaches if they drink wine that has sulfites in it. And, you know, it's a preservative. And if, if it, it's not in wine, the wine's flavor can dramatically change and, and how long the, the wine will last will dramatically change. I'm not reading anything about sulfites that, that bothers me or that, that worries me. I mean, I originally thought that they caused headaches until I did some reading, but that was all part of his shtick. It's all the clean eating bullshit. Yeah, you know that's which is you know I would expect that to be rampant in any in anything like that. You know, I thought that was a little fun thing that was happening because everybody immediately when when the guys started talking this way, they they were looking at me and Bob like expecting us to be like, "No, you're wrong, sir." You know, it's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not why I'm here today. You're off duty. Jay and yeah. Bob, did did any of these places try selling you or have on display a device for sale which supposedly makes a inexpensive bottle of wine taste like some super expensive bottle of wine? No. Cra- yeah, it's called a fake like label. That. Yeah, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, right. Seriously, you put, a, you put an expensive label on wine, people will think it tastes like an expensive wine. Oh, my gosh. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. There's so much psychology involved in that. One thing that that one of the the uh, what do you call these wine guys? Wine guy? What do you call them? <laughs> Winers. Winer, yeah. Wino, wino. Winos. One thing one of the winos told us, that's it. You know, that paints a different picture. One of, one of the the people that produce wine was saying was that you can, if you take a, a red wine and you swirl it around in the glass. Remember this, mm-hmm. Bob? Gave us a demonstration. Yeah. If it's an aged wine, it will not stick to the side of the glass. Only, only a non-aged wine will do that. And you know you could see this if you if you have the right kind of wine if you swish it around it, the 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 red color will kind of stick to the inside of the glass a little bit and it, it has like a pinky misty look to it. So therefore, some property breaks down over time. Yeah, there's something in the chemistry of the bottle being you know something is happening when wine is aged that it won't do that anymore. And then he was saying how he was at a restaurant and they had on the menu you know, aged wine or whatever, and it was really expensive. And he did that test with the wine, and it was clearly like, you know, fresh wine. You know, it was like something that was probably produced within the last year. Uh-huh. And he told the waiter, and he ended up get, getting kicked out of the restaurant, <laughs> which I'm like, wow, that happens? Like, the wine snobbery is pretty epic. So he, who was kicked out of the restaurant? He lost. He was for pointing out that they were – Falsely advertising aged wine when he they, is the customer. Oh, the they, customer. they kicked the customer out for calling them on their false advertising. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. bad for business. You see, <laughs> yeah. oh boy, no. yeah, that's, that's where rough. I thought that story was going. Yeah, I, mean, I know. I when he told me the story, I didn't think it was going there either. But he, he did give the cool demonstration, and we were looking at it like, oh yeah, you're right. It doesn't stick to to the side. <laughs> Here's your lobster, sir. No, I'm sorry. This is a uh, trout. Get out. <laughs> Did you ask him if he could tell the difference between red and white wine blindfolded? <laughs> do you really think you can't? <laughs> Steve, do you really think you can't? That there was a study which showed well, that if you know you put red dye in white wine, people think it's red wine. Oh you my can't God. The whole thing is so funny because it's like basically propped up on what? Like it really I, I can tell the difference in taste between an aged wine and a non-aged wine, aged wine, you can, I think a lot of times you can tell there's a de- definite thing that you taste in a non-aged wine. It has, it just has a flavor to it. And I, I would love to test that to see how you know wrong my perception is. Well, we is. have to, we'll add that we to should. our wine and our, uh, our tea and, and uh, coffee tasting that we have to do at some point. Yeah. Absolutely. If you all that blind to stuff on ourselves. But the thing is, the, the real point is that there is so much you know, there's visual information too. When we eat something, the experience of eating, it's not just taste, it's also the texture, the mouthfeel, the smell, and also factor, visually yeah. what it looks like. The And, and expectation, yep. our, our senses actually change based upon those other senses. So it's sure. obviously smell and taste is very closely related, but even just the way it looks, the way the food looks will affect. So that is why a lot of food producers will will very deliberately manipulate the color or the look of the food. If you have something that's supposed to be lime-flavored, even if it would be normally colorless, they will put green dye in there so it looks like lime. Sure. Like orange soda is not orange. You know, it's clear. They, they make it <laughs> right. orange-colored so that you have that visual stimuli so you know it's orange, you know? Yeah. So you're sort of tricking your brain into thinking, okay, I'm t- uh, yeah. really having something that is orange. Have you guys ever had colorless soda? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's horrible. Yeah, there's just it just doesn't it's just not right. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, it's right. Just visually wrong. It hurts. It's funny. Have you ever have you guys ever had salmon? Yes. I don't eat salmon. 
Did you know that salmon is not actually naturally orange colored? No, but the flesh, oh, the flesh of the fish that's is not actually salmon colored. Yeah, it's not salmon, salmon colored. Gray? Yeah, it's like a gray white, and they um, it's it's affected by the food that they feed the fish. Oh, they, oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, they, yeah, that's true of a lot of seafood that they. Yeah. The, the color is from what they eat. Like flamingos are not pink unless they eat the shells or crustaceans. Right? Yeah, that yep. that give them the pink color. Yeah, that elephant I saw in the room after the wine tour was pink. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get started, Bob. You're going to get us going with a forgotten superhero of science. Yes. So uh, for this week's forgotten superheroes of science, I'm covering Francis Glessner Lee. 1878 to 1962, who is known as the mother of forensic science. Glessner was fascinated with forensic science, law, and medicine, but women didn't go to college uh, at, at her time, so uh, she had to resign herself to being a housewife while uh, she watched her brother go to Harvard. And uh, she, uh, ex- you know, she had an unhappy marriage. She uh, eventually got divorced, and she always kind of regretted not being having the opportunities that men had. Uh, when her father, who was a wealthy uh, industrialist, died, he left her a boatload of money. And so, in her fifties, Glessner uh, embarked on a new career—the uh, one that she always wanted. Her middle name's Glessner; her last name is Lee. So she uh, she endowed the Harvard Department uh, of Legal Medicine in 1931, uh, the first of its kind in the United States. Uh, working with Dr. George Burgess McGrath, uh, Boston's medical examiner, they both changed the way detectives approached crime scenes. Com- fundamentally changed it. Forensic investigation was finally becoming a scientific enterprise. Um, it was really dramatic, and uh, she did this in a large part through the creation of these exquisite dioramas of crime scenes. They were incredible. She would create a, a crime scene diorama with amazing detail. You know, they, there were tiny working doors. The lights worked. Even the little tiny mouse traps actually worked. Uh, she would create these little tiny newspaper replicas. And ironically, she used a lot of the skills that she had acquired when she was a housewife in terms of maybe, you know, painting and embroidering and things like that. But she had an eye for detail. She called her little uh, multi-thousand dollar scenes. I mean, we're talking talking three and four thousand dollars and this is going back you know uh, many many decades so that so it's even more uh, amazing than you would even think she called them uh, nutshells because she said they can be used to convict the guilty clear the innocent and find the truth in a nutshell she said it's truly about using your powers of observation to guess and to try and see what was happening in the scene so she would display this uh, beautiful diorama for these uh, for these detectives and they had to look at this look at everything everything was there that they needed or any detail blood spatter murder weapon everything was there and they had to kind of just figure out the figure the whole thing out and um, and apparently from what I from what I'm reading scenes like this are still used to d- today to train homicide investigators so remember Francis Glessner Lee mention her to your friends perhaps when discussing galvanoplastics. Uh, Louis Daguerre, or perhaps forensic dactyloscopy. What was that last one? Dactyloscopy? Forensic dactyloscopy. Fingerprints. Dactyl? Oh, dactyl. Okay, yeah. Yes. Cool. Uh, So it is interesting, you know, when you think about how many things went through that transition from a pre-scientific to a scientific era, right? And that was what a profound Mm -hmm. transition that was. Medicine itself, you know, went from that transition from pre-scientific to scientific. I mean, uh, but talk about changing the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for, for forensic moments. science, 
you know, I don't know if you, you guys are aware of this, but you know, a lot of forensic science is bullshit. And there's core it's, ones that are that are legitimate, but a lot it's of scary. A, yeah, a lot of pseudoscience is kind of infiltrated. I think because of the the pressure to have like bring scientific evidence to bear in court cases, and then the, there was a proliferation of you know pseudo experts mm-hmm. like it, bite analysis. So they really, yeah, like bite analysis. So they they identikits and these sorts or of hair things. analysis or even like uh, the. The bullet analysis. There's things that are based on a lot on subjective pattern recognition, which really hasn't been validated. Uh, fingerprints are valid. I mean, those are although you could overcall them as well, but you know, but the core of you know fingerprint analysis is legitimate. So I think we you know, we need to go through another period of like really purging the borderline or pseudoscience from you know what what is getting admitted you know as forensic science in courtroom and people talk about the csi effect you guys we've used that yes. term before where mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. jurors expect like to be wowed with scientific evidence when they're on a jury on a murder case and it, it creates an unrealistic expectation and then they get disappointed i think well there isn't any of this you know csi type uh, evidence, so maybe they don't know what's going on. Right. See a shadow of doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was a uh, an interesting news item. It was a, a review uh, of the literature looking at the effects of debunking myths, which is something that we're interested in here on the issue because we do it a lot, right? And we want to know the, mm-hmm. the science of, of what it is we're actually doing. So, what do you think was the the bottom line here? Does debunking work or not work? Oh, um, work hmm. on meaning work Let's on say, the people that are, yeah, are believing. Yeah, trying it, right? to change the belief in myths and belief in facts that are wrong by correcting them. Yeah, and, probably more people dig their heels in rather than change their mind. I would think it works. I think the answer was it depends. Yeah, it is, the answer is it depends. It, it works sort of sometimes if you do it right, but it's not easy. <laughs> That's the answer. No. Yeah. Oh, good. That's nice simple answer. The uh, psychologists reviewed the literature on this specific question, and what they found is that if you just say no, that belief is wrong, that has no effect. Basically, no, no significant effect. All right. What you have to do is give people a replacement explanatory system. Right. You have to give them an alternate narrative. So in other words, you need to tell them why it's wrong, why people believe this wrong thing, and what's true and why it's true. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So you need what they call a detailed debunking message that includes an explanatory narrative, not just a factual correction. Okay. Yeah, which I think is what we do, right? So I think that that intuitively makes sense to me. It kind of fits with our experience. So first of all, we know it's not easy. We know it's not as simple as just telling somebody that they're wrong or giving them factual information. And you know what we basically do is we you know have in-depth nitty-gritty discussions about exactly why people believe wrong things. How does that belief come about? How does it propagate? How does it propagate? What you know, again? Why it's wrong? And then what is true? How we know what's true? And, you know, all the supporting facts and logic and critical thinking skills and psychology that goes with it. And I guess what this literature is saying is that, yeah, you pretty much need to do that. You know, you need to <laughs> really you need to have this de- what they call the detailed debunking message, not just fixing factual information. The um, the digging in your heels effect, Evan, I think is part of all this, but it's separate. Uh, that's when you have an emotional investment in 
the belief as a ideology or source of identity. Mm-hmm. If, if you have a vested interest in the belief, uh, like if you're developing your political tribe, if you're defending your political tribe, for example, or defending your religious belief, mm-hmm. or defending something that you have internalized as an identity, uh, then you will absolutely dig in your heels, which means that when faced with misinfor- with correcting information or, or debunking information, that motivates you to search for justifications to, to justify your belief and to reject the correcting information. And that actually strengthens your belief in, in the original position. But if, if that's only when you have a vested interest, if you don't, then people will generally accept the corrections because there is, people do want to be correct. There is a correction bias. We want to be correct. But what this is saying is slightly tangential to that. It's like even if they don't have a vested interest in it, they may not change just by giving them the correct information because the old information may have already been incorporated into a narrative. Even if it's not an identity or a tribe or an ideology, it's still, you know, if somebody has a nice story that explains something, it's it's a lot of mental work to change the narrative, to change the story. So you have to kind of give it to them. Right, so let's take, for example, a conspiracy theory. Someone believes 9-11 was an inside, inside job. Yep. That's part of a narrative. Now, we know if they believe it was an inside job because they're on the ideological left and they hate Bush, that, and it's part of their sort of tribal narrative against the enemy, somebody on the other side, you know, then – yeah, it's nothing's going to matter, right? They're they're going to dig in their heels, but even if they're or if they're a dedicated conspiracy theorist, where conspiracy theories are part of their worldview and their their identity, yeah, you're probably not going to change their mind either. But I think there are a lot of people who just for them it was just a prepackaged narrative. You know, it's like it kind of makes sense of everything, and right, it's like oh, you know, how, how did this happen? You know, wh- wh- there are all these weird things. You know, and here's this narrative which sort of explains it all. Um, just telling them, no, it wasn't an inside job. That's, you know, that's a conspiracy theory. That's incorrect. You know, here's the official story may not be enough to change their mind. You need to tell them this is how conspiracy thinking works. And this is why these beliefs emerge. And here's how we know what actually did happen. You know what I mean? You have to give them a replacement narrative, which in, in my opinion, the replacement narrative that we offer is the skeptical narrative, right? It's sure. belief in critical thinking, self-knowledge, scientific methodology leads to an understanding of how reliable specific claims are. And that, that I think that's a powerful narrative. We, we, as we've mentioned before, we occasionally get emails from people who listen to our show as a, not, a non-skeptic to hear what the quote-unquote other side has to say or you know, maybe because they were interested in some of the things that we had to say but not others. And and over time, again, you know, after weeks and months of getting repeated detailed debunking messages, they started to adopt the skeptical narrative. You know, they became skeptics. Um, so anyway, I think that, you know, it's interesting when the – the scientific research dovetails so much with our personal experience, you know. 
you know, I think that's exactly when you should be especially skeptical of the science when it's confirming what you think you've already already believed. But right. I, I, it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that we need to be careful. We don't accept it too easily. But in any case, um, I think, you know, to me, this says, okay, the, the evidence we do have, you know, according to this review supports continuing to do what we're doing, which is to like really get into a lot of detail in order to to counteract myths and false beliefs that are out there in the public. You can't just do a a, um, a 30 second public service announcement. That's not going right. to do it. And we had that speech won't work. Yeah, we had that conversation before. Like a lot of research shows that the PSAs don't work. If you do this, if you do that, it's like, I think the problem is not the strategy. It's that PSAs don't work. It's too short. You need, you need, again, you need to give a, a fully fleshed out narrative and detailed explanations before people are going to buy it. Which might be a little counterintuitive in that we are of the YouTube sort of generation now in which we want, generally speaking, People want to consume things fast, faster, easier, quicker, whether it's their entertainment, no matter, no matter what it is. So it sort of goes against that grain in a certain sense. Yeah. So this is what I think about that. I think you're correct. But as we've also discussed previously on the show, when we were talking to Craig Good about cinema, I think it applies. I think that, you know, as we have become more media savvy, more savvy at consuming various types of multimedia, that we have collectively the producers and the consumers of media have learned a language which enables us to communicate in a very efficient way. And so you may watch that three-minute YouTube video, and that three minutes may be enough to communicate a detailed narrative that is prepackaged. Uh, I do think that's where we are at a disadvantage because often the skeptical narrative is a lot more complicated and takes a lot more time you know, to get people there. That's the challenge. Yeah. The, That's the, the part of what we do that makes it so difficult. That's exactly why I didn't even want to go there with the wine guy. Yeah, because like, where do you start? It's like, okay, you can't give him a you – could, yeah, you could have thrown out your almost like trolling kind of comment. But unless you really had like an, uh, the ability to have a 20 or 30-minute conversation, it's probably not worth it. Unless you just feel like they just need to know – not everybody agrees with that. You know, sometimes I, I throw that out there. I say, well, just for the record, I don't think that that's true. You know, if you ever want to get a detailed conversation about it, we can have that another time. But just so that they know, not, this is not generally accepted. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's that a might nice be like, public service announcement. But no, I don't agree, Bob. I don't think it's enough for most people, especially, you know, this guy was dyed in the wool, right? I mean, he, he was selling his, his wine yes. through these things. He was using them as a vehicle to, to make his wine special. So it would have been a big conversation. Yeah, Jay, my point was not that that would have necessarily applied to him, but for some people, just knowing that there is some dissension uh, is shocking enough, you know, and surprising yeah. enough that, that for them, they may start looking into it like, oh, wow, I didn't even know that was. On the, you know, that was even possible, really. So, yeah, so when, for some people, that could be enough. But, yeah, for this guy, it, it wouldn't, yeah. for sure. The other time I do it, even if it, if I don't have time to get into detail, is when I think that there's a consumer feedback angle. So if this guy's doing this because he thinks this is what consumers want, consumers want, it might be enough to say, here's a consumer who wants doesn't want the pseudoscience with their wine or whatever it is that they're selling. You know, that kind of feedback is important. That's why I say like if you are seeing a doctor and the doctor tries to push acupuncture or whatever on you, it's important to tell them, you know what? 
I don't like that. I don't think that's scientific. It gives me concerns about your approach and I don't feel comfortable with this. Rather than just never giving them the feedback and going away, then they don't know that there's people out there who don't want the bullshit, you know? So it's always a delicate balance. You have to know your audience, know the context and, and, and be at least thoughtful about what you're doing. But sometimes the knee jerk skepticism is counterproductive or just inappropriate and doesn't really accomplish anything. You don't have to feel obligated to always be an ass or to, you know, again, so in some contexts, just like lobbing in skeptical, you know, observations is kind of trolling. You have yeah. to, yeah, you do have to know mm-hmm. when, when it's going to be useful, constructive, appropriate. But, you know, sometimes the, the quickie feedback can be effective, but you have to be thoughtful about how you do it. Yeah, it's hard because it's hard. On, yeah. this, on the spectrum of, Becoming a, a skeptic, a, a you know an educated skeptic. You know, I had this journey, Steve. I think you were very good at avoiding a lot of the initial drama that I was attracted to. It. I liked being confrontational and having knowledge, and you know, being able to tell people that they were wrong and and say stupid and provocative things. That, if anything, I just probably made a lot of people upset for probably five years or so as I was becoming a skeptic initially. Uh, more, I think, longer than that, Jay. <laughs> probably, right? But, I, but Evan, you, you know, did you go through that? Did you have like a period where you were like a, almost a naysayer? Yeah. Like, no, that's bullshit. It's, you know? it's because when you first discover, I think, sort of a skeptical approach, you're very excited to sort of share it with as many people as possible. And, you're, and it can become sort of an overzealous thing in which yeah. you sell, you're trying to sell it too hard in a certain sense. You, yep. Um, and you, you, you know, a soft sell at certain points is a better approach in oh, certain circumstances. You're, you mature. Your, your approach matures as you get more experience and you talk with more people and you take a more and more thoughtful approach. It evolves. You know, that's fine. Uh, we've certainly worked with a lot of people over the years who were, you know, in that initial enthusiastic phase where they wanted to change the world and they wanted to have every battle, no matter how tiny and, right. you know, and to be an activist in creative ways, like, you know, go in the bookstore and put the pseudoscience books behind the other books or whatever, just do crazy stuff. It's like, yeah, you know, just calm down is that you're not going to change the world <laughs> right. and you just want, you don't have to be constantly in battle mode. It's not just picking your battles, but it's also understanding the situation, the context, the people that you're dealing with, and that there's a backfire effect, right? You, you, sure. you don't, you don't, you want to avoid any backfire effect. It's sometimes it's better to do nothing than to do something half cocked and thoughtlessly. That's just not going to achieve the goal that you want to achieve. It meaning well isn't enough. You have to be thoughtful about how you, if you're an activist, you have to be thoughtful about how you're being an activist, about what you're doing. You want an actual effect, not just the satisfaction of saying, well, I did something, you know. Um, but it is really, really tricky. And, and I think what we're trying to do is especially tricky because we're often trying to replace simplistic appealing narratives with complicated, maybe not so appealing narratives, or what's appealing about them is a lot deeper and more subtle and more maybe more remote. It's like, well, you're not going to live forever in a paradise. Live forever in a paradise. You are going to just die and be food for worms. But you're going to have a much more clear-eyed view of reality. You know, it's it's <laughs> not always it's not always an easy sell. No, not to beat that dead horse because we've talked about this a lot as well. <laughs> but anyway, this is what we do. We have to be introspective as well. All right, Jay. So we're going to go from this topic about debunking to debunking. A bit of pseudoscience that I've been annoyed at for a while, but tell us about mindfulness meditation. Is this legit or not? 
That's a great question, Steve. You must quietly ask yourself first, Mm -hmm. have you heard of mindfulness? Are you self-aware of mindfulness? (laughs) Sorry. Did I start to hypnotize you by accident? (laughs) You know, mindfulness, I've heard of it. I've had uh, close friends of mine recommend that I practice it to improve my sleep. And it is interesting. And let's talk about what it is, and then we'll get into some research that's been done recently, and we'll, we'll see what you guys think at the end. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness is the, is the practice of focusing your full attention on, as an example, the current moment, the thing that's happening to you right now. At, the, at that specific moment, you could be you know, having a meal. You could just be observing your surroundings. You could be spending time with a pet, whatever. The point is to not have your mind wander to the past or the future, but exist in your now, in that moment. And people develop mindfulness as a skill by using meditation as an example. Like If you meditate, that could help you kind of focus yourself in a sense, and you could become more aware of your surroundings and listen to all your sensory input, everything that's, that's coming in, that type of thing. Mindfulness is a uh, significant part of the Buddhist tradition, and it was popularized in the 1970s by a Massachusetts professor named John Kabat-Zinn, and he is a cognitive scientist who used mindfulness to help with stress reduction. And he is directly responsible for why we, we are all talking about it today, why we all know about it. There are many claims about the benefits of mindfulness, but the most common one cited is that it helps develop a sense of well-being. And since this is extraordinarily subjective, this sense of well-being, there's no real way to measure that other than just talking to people and asking them how they feel. Other studies, though, have concluded that practitioners have improved cognitive function, and that is somewhat testable, and even make claims that the tips of chromosomes, you know, the, the telomeres that we've talked about, yeah, that you could affect, you know, how well your telomeres perform, or, or the, you know, the fact that they're still there and intact and doing what they're doing. Through which is mindfulness. A, yeah, well, that's that's some of the crazier claims that are out there. I'm just giving you a spectrum wow. here of of things that people say. So, what's the reality behind it, and, and what can we legitimately do with the claims that are are being made? You know, are they, are they fantasy? You know, can we quantify them? Well, neuroscientists and psychologists and even people who are practiced at meditation are saying that some of the claims are not backed by science, which I think is, you know, very typical of, of something that's, you know, quote unquote new, at least new to most of us. You know, most of us don't have detailed understanding of what it is. In a recent article published in Perspectives on Psychological science, scientists and psychologists raise concerns saying that the existing scientific data on mindfulness is weak. They cite problems with the studies that currently exist. And you probably probably have heard us say this on the show before. But the studies, um, a lot of them are poorly designed. And they often don't have a control group, which rules out the placebo effect. And that's a you know super fast and obvious thing that a lot of these studies don't have. And also it was noted that the studies are not even using a consistent definition of what mindfulness is. And that's really a big problem because if the researchers don't agree on exactly what it is they're researching, then they can't compare their data. And that makes it so you can't do meta-analyses and, and try to you know find some some answers in all of that information. Now, they found that 9% of the clinical trials on mindfulness included a controlled group, only 9%, which, again, that's not good. They also say in the paper that the studies that did have a control group produced unimpressive results. 
So a 2014 review of 47 uh, meditation trials, collectively including over 3,500 participants, uh, found no evidence for benefits related to enhancing attention, curtailing substance abuse, aiding sleep, or controlling weight. Nicholas Van Dam, the lead author in the report, he's a clinical psychologist and a research fellow in psychological sciences at the University of Melbourne, and he believes that any of the potential benefits that mindfulness could actually have are being obscured by all the hype and bullshit, using my word. Um, This is, of course, coming mostly from those who stand to make money off of it. So, you know, I find it absolutely amazing that mindfulness as an idea, has become a $1.1 billion industry in the U.S. alone. $1.1 billion a year Mm. people are spending on this idea of mindfulness, learning about it, taking classes, buying books, you know, paying for online videos and tutorials and seminars and all this stuff. And Van Dam noted that there are, there may be some positive effects from it. You, you know, if you practice mindfulness, there might be some things about it that that you could get out of it, but only rigorous scientific studies are going to be able to prove that these things are valuable or not. Now, here are some things that that are true. The 2014 analysis found meditation and mindfulness may provide modest benefits in anxiety, depression, and pain. And Van Dam later noted, he said, look, these are three things that we think it could potentially have a positive impact on, but without doing rigorous studies on these things that have already kind of been tested out that we find valuable enough to study, unless the time and attention and the correct type of studies are are put in play to test those out, we'll never know. But what immediately struck me by that, though, was they were saying, yeah, it may work for these three things that are really squirrely, that have a huge placebo effect, and that are the hardest to really do study rigorously, that are totally subjective. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I wonder wonder why those three things, you know, because – so They're all subjective. You're totally right, Steve. But but still, I mean, you know, doing the tests, doing studies on on – what something like mindfulness can do for people overall is good, but they're they're advising do properly formatted studies, properly constructed studies. Make sure that you're studying the negative effects as well. You shouldn't just be t- t- testing things that potentially could be positive, but are there any things that are problematic about it that could that could worsen a person's condition? They were saying that as an example that they some studies have shown that it reduces self perceived stress, but not the hormone cortisol. Right. So there you go. Like that's that's a great thing to test because you could say, hey, look, okay, people are saying that they're feeling less stress, but biologically we're not seeing the proof of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they can they can then draw some information out of studies that are looking at that as an example. My big problem with the research, though. So, yeah, they're not doing well controlled studies, but. The, the problem is you have something with a vague definition, right? There really isn't an operational definition of what it is. They go, well, it's a different thing for every person. Okay, whatever. But they, they don't really control for any specific variable. So you can't really study it scientifically. So in other words, I always look to see like whenever – like every week there are studies of mindfulness works for this or for that. It's all tooth fairy science, right? It's all yep. you know, doing superficial science and not really addressing the actual underlying question of is there something real here that actually has an effect that you could measure? And so what they don't do is have as a control group something that would control for all of the nonspecific effects of relaxation – but not whatever you think defines mindfulness. So that's the thing. That's, that's why you need to be able to have an operational definition of mindfulness. And if you don't, then you can't control for it and you can't study it. Um, so like, for example, 
They say, well, mindfulness will lower your blood pressure. Yeah, I wonder if sitting and reading a book will lower your blood pressure. Exactly, right. They should compare to that. They never compare to something like that that I think would probably have the same effect. So there's so many analogies you can draw to this, like yoga, for example. Yoga is fine. Yoga is a type of exercise and stretching. But if you say like yoga works for X – it's like, okay, does it, is it yoga specifically that works for X or is it any kind of equivalent exercise and stretching that works? You know, is it, is it really just that did you control for physical activity? You know, or yeah. so don't, which is fine. If, if you're saying that yoga is a reasonable physical activity or reasonable form of exercise, that's fine. Sure. But if you go beyond that to say that there's something magical about it, it centers right. your chi and does that, you know, if you, if you try to use those studies, which show that it has the same effects that any exercise has in order to endorse specific claims that were not specifically controlled for, like it centers your chi, that's where the pseudoscience is. So like when they say, well, there's something about mindfulness that lengthens your telomeres. Bullshit. It's not lengthening your freaking telomeres, right? That's not happening. You know, but that's what they're trying to say. They're trying to, they're trying to use the non-specific effects of just sitting and relaxing or just taking a break from your day and then parlaying that into specific claims as if there's something magical happening. Uh, and it's, it's much worse with transcendental meditation than mindfulness, which is a, which is a similar but distinct, you know, thing that is studied. And there's a lot of religious belief, you know, behind transcendental meditation. So there's a lot of motivation to, to overhype it. But this, this is the same phenomenon as with, for example, acupuncture, right? And so what there are different phases of scientific research. There's sort of the preliminary phase where people are looking, they're doing small studies that may be controlled or not controlled that are just trying to get an idea of like, is there anything interesting happening here? How do we study it? You know, is it worth doing bigger studies? We don't really know if there's anything real going on until you figure out a way to isolate variables and test that in a rigorous double-blind placebo-controlled way. And then we figure out if it works or doesn't work. But what we're seeing happen a lot is either – People never do those studies. They just go, they just stay in the preliminary study or they go past the efficacy trials to pragmatic studies where they're just looking at how it's used, but they're not really testing to see is it real or does it work? They're, they're, that's the tooth fairy part. Like they're not really ever questioning the fundamental premise. Does the tooth fairy exist? They're just testing to see how much money is left for the teeth. You know, this is Harriet Hall's analogy, which I like. So it's the same thing. They stopped or they, they do the studies, like they studied acupuncture. It doesn't work. So they go, well, never mind those studies. Let's just now start doing pragmatic studies, which are guaranteed to be positive, where we're not really asking the question. They're not efficacy trials. You're not isolating variables and seeing if those variables work. You're just saying, do people subjectively say they feel better when they get it or that's crazy. That, be, that means you just, it just becomes a marketing scheme exactly. that you can point to. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it just becomes a self-promoting belief system that has a life of its own, completely separate from science, but wants the imprimatur of science, but in in the process is – You're not going to get it. 
it's destroying the the the, the fundamental pillars of science. That's like why, why like things like acupuncture drive me crazy because it's really an attack on science itself. Short it's drive. an attack on the scientific basis of medicine. It turns scientific research on its head, and they literally do this. Proponents of, of acupuncture say, "No, science works this way. I want it to work, not the way you say it works." You know, we don't have to do efficacy trials, and we can't control for variables, and everyone's different. And it's all just bullshit reasons to explain away why they can't prove that their belief system is based in actual reality. And so while mindfulness may be a benign version of this, it's still crappy science or non-science pretending to be science by not doing it correctly. And it really is eroding the fundamental scientific basis of medicine. Not that I have any strong opinions about it. (laughs) (laughs) Or have thought about it at all. Yeah. So the thing, the thing that, troubles me again is that there isn't a true way to test it where and then it's all then like you were saying steve like you might as well just sit there close your eyes take some deep breaths have time to relax definitely watch um you know alpha quadrant six as an example yeah (laughs) (laughs) if you love star trek and jay we we should do the same kind of studies looking at the effects of watching alpha quadrant six i bet you it lowers your blood pressure and lengthens your telomeres (laughs) just as much as mindfulness and in case you didn't know, that's <laughs> that is our Star Trek Discovery after show that's live on Facebook. Oh my god, I am such a such a nerd. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it bothers episode. me, Steve. It it bothers me because so many people like this example with mindfulness. I I wanted it to be true because I would love to have something like this. You know, something that can relax you, that you can get good at. Yeah. That. You know, like it's a, relax, and if it helps you relax, fine. Just say hey, this is a technique that helps you relax. Yeah, but that's it. Just don't make any overhyped claims beyond that. You know, just sure relaxation is proven to be good good for you in lots of ways. You know, you, you don't want to be stressed all the time. It's good to take a break. And, and but for eight hundred dollars, Steve, you can go to a four hour seminar. Right. At the, uh, you know, at but the people Ramada want Inn. the <laughs> people want the magic, though. They want this. It's, uh-huh. it's not just a you know a basic life skill about learning how to relax. They, they want the magic inside track of how it's going to do something special. That's where that's where the hype comes in and the, the marketing. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, Lisa. That's L-E-E-S-A. This is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress seller. Now, I like this company. They said that for every 10 mattresses that they sell, they give one away for free. Nice. Wow. They would give that away to a shelter through the 110 program. And they also do something which is good for the environment. They plant one tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. Wow, this is uncommon. I really like this company. Lisa has a patented universal adaptive feel, which is designed for all kinds of sleepers. And it features three premium foam layers, a two-inch Avena foam top layer, a two-inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring purposes, and a six-inch dense core support foam for durability and structure, and it's good for sleepers of all sizes. This is available online in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany, or at the Lisa Dream Gallery in New York City. If you don't want to go to the store, they will send it to you compressed in a box right to your door. Yeah, so you could try Lisa Mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free with free shipping. And you get $100 off when you go to leesa.com slash skeptics. That's leesa.com slash skeptics. 
All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Evan, mm-hmm. you're gonna t- you're gonna now debunk for us Columbus Day. You have to be careful. Be careful, Evan. You're you're on the show with three paisanos. (laughs) So right. Thank you for reminding me. That's always an important reminder. Uh, This this past Monday, that was Monday, October 9th, it was Columbus Day. Columbus Day is a national holiday in many countries of the Americas and elsewhere, which officially celebrates the anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the Americas on October 12th. 1492. And it became a federal holiday in the United States as of 1937. So we've been observing it for many decades. Many Italian Americans, as you said, Steve, observe Columbus Day as a celebration of their heritage. Mm -hmm. And each year, the second Monday of October is the Columbus Day federal holiday. So it does fall on a different day each year numerically, but it's the second Monday of October. Oh, do you know what else... uh, October 9th was this year, Bob. National Nanotechnology Day. Yay. That's no awesome, Bob. Way. Cool How that? did I miss that? Ah. It was over in a in a width in a hair of a second. Yeah, that was very short. Wow. It was just for it was for 3 short. nanoseconds, Bob. <laughs> now, simultaneously, the second Monday of every October is Indigenous Peoples Day. And that's a holiday that obviously celebrates the indigenous people of America. It is celebrated across the United States, mostly in cities and some states. They recognize it. It began as a counter-celebration to the Columbus Day holiday, and it's intended to celebrate Native Americans and commemorate their shared history and culture. So, happy Columbus Day or happy Indigenous Peoples Day, whichever you choose to observe. However, Columbus Day and the man for whom the day is celebrated, Christopher Columbus, is not without controversy. It's all well and good to honor a person credited for discovering the Americas, but history suggests that Christopher Columbus was not all well and good. And these legends surrounding the man, if not outright myths behind the man, which children in the United States for many decades have been taught from a very early age, well, I think we can say with confidence that several of the facts about Christopher Columbus don't exactly jive with how he is taught in the elementary schools. For example... Here are a few common Christopher Columbus facts that have been, and in some cases continue to be, taught to kids. Number one, one of the main purposes of Christopher Columbus's 1492 expedition was to prove that the Earth was round. Number two, Christopher Columbus discovered the American mainland. Number three, Queen Isabel of Spain sold the crown jewels to pay for Columbus's voyage. Number four, Columbus's ships were named the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. And number five, Columbus is revered, lauded, and and admired for his exploratory skills, his savviness as a trader, and his temperance as a governor of many of the lands upon which Spain planted their flags, based on his discoveries. When examining history, and I'm speaking in sort of a general sense here, skepticism really becomes a very good tool to apply, because we have to remember that there are certain biases in play, especially from the point of view of those who are still around to either write or record or retell or teach the events which eventually become history, history with a large capital H. Uh, There's an old saying that history is written by the victors, and I think there's some truth to that, especially when it comes to the recounting of major battles and wars throughout history. And we've also spoken about this before on previous episodes of The Skeptic's Guide, where history could be written quite differently from those who wind up on, say, the losing side of these conflicts. And we've talked about it sometimes in the context of science fiction, where, say, in Star Wars, 
the people fighting on the side of the Galactic Empire see history play out very differently than that for which we're treated to in the movies, where it's a small band of rebels and a few remaining Jedi Knights. So it's always good to keep that in mind. Um, but when we're teaching history to the still developing brains of six and seven year old children who at that age start to learn about Christopher Columbus in American classrooms, they get sort of a watered down, simplistic version of history that has a well, way of wrong. obscuring. It's not, yeah, it's not just the watered facts. down, it's factually incorrect. Well, a lot of it is. I mean, there are some things because I went online, Steve, and looked at sort of these online guides and things that they give for teachers and what to show in the, in their classes. So I, I, I would say perhaps, um, some time ago, yes, we were, we were getting totally, you know, the wrong stories about Christopher Columbus, but they seem to have started to make some corrections. Yeah. Some it's definitely things. better so that's now. That's good. Yeah. It's better now. But yes, for us who are adults now, what we were taught in our school, you really have to kind of throw out those books. And I, I brought up five specific ones, so let me let me touch on each of these real quick. Number one, one of the main purposes of Christopher Columbus's 1492 expedition was to prove the Earth was round. That's not true. Uh, it was well established by certainly the 1490s and well by the ancient that, Greeks. That, yes. So what? The, a thousand years prior? Yeah. <laughs> pretty clearly, Eratosthenes. Yeah. The, the the ancient Greeks figured out that the Earth was a sphere, mm -hmm. and that knowledge was never lost. That scholars knew that from the time of ancient of the ancient Greeks, no scholar in the Middle Ages believed that the world was flat. So yeah, that was just a, a retrofitted, much later myth. They say that that particular myth was uh, came back sort of into the consciousness of the public thanks to American author Washington Irving's 1828 Chronicle of the Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus. Yeah, that's which part he br of it. Bring, brings that up, right? And I'm sure there are other examples. Really, what was in question at the time was the Earth's circumference. How big was the Earth? And that was a big, you know, they, there was still debate as to how, how large the Earth was um, at, at, its, at its equator, for example. Um, upon mapping his route, uh, Columbus underestimated the distance to Asia, which was his destination, by... Huge, but thousands of miles. Yeah. Um, because you know, he just made poor cal calculations and therefore, you know, the myth about him trying to prove that the world was not flat, absolutely wrong. Number two. Not only did he grossly underestimate the size of the earth, but he also rejected the consensus opinion of the experts of the time. So he was a crank. Yeah. He was, he was substituting his own bad math. For the people who had more expertise than he did, who were like, nah, they, who got the size of the earth almost exactly right. Again, right. Eratosthenes knew it was basically had, had the right answer. Amazing and accuracy. If, if the Americas weren't in the middle, you know, of there of his journey, mm -hmm. he would have starved mm -hmm. in the middle of the ocean like everyone said he was going to. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely right. He also had uh, the concept of an earth being more sort of pear shaped rather than actually. Yeah spherical in in nature right. I, don't, I don't i don't know if he was uh taking into account perhaps something about the equ equatorial bulge which we know is a thing but i kind of doubt that it was the earth is a little pear-shaped yeah but slightly. not in the way that he thought yeah it bulges a tiny bit at the southern hemisphere versus the northern hemisphere but yep. it's more correct it, it's a sphere to first approximation right that's these are subtle tweaks that we've been able to understand through like satellite measurements, et cetera. But mm -hmm. yeah, a workable model of the earth is basically a sphere. 
I don't know if you were taught this in school that Christopher Columbus discovered the American mainland, but if you were, that's wrong. He never set foot in the North American mainland. In North America, uh, South America, and the Central America, yes. Right, Central America, yes. But um, North America, no, no. He wasn't even the first European to come to the Americas. Uh, many historians suspect that Viking Leif Erikson, whom I think we know about. Oh, by the way, October 9th is recognized each year as Leif Erikson's, Erikson Day. Um, so it just happens to be coincidence that is it's it pronounced day Leif? Columbus Day. Leif Erikson? I pronounce it Leif, but I, I, I don't mind being corrected on that. Yeah, the, the difference between Leif Erikson and Columbus, though, is that when Columbus discovered the Americas for Europeans, we have to say, because there were already a million people living here when he got here. So he didn't discover it for humans. He discovered it for Europe. But when he did, it didn't ever have to be rediscovered later by anyone else. Whereas when Leif Erikson did, that knowledge was lost. We didn't really definitively discover it for Europeans. No, he didn't. And a a fair point, because also there's Suggestions that the Chinese actually made it to the west coast of America in the early yeah. 15th century. That's never been proven though, right? Not proven, no, yeah. but suggestions. And there are people who do have some, you know, are suggesting that that did happen. And also, frankly, I think, you know, again, going back to the indigenous people, what about the people who crossed the Bering Straits 13 or 14,000 years, you know, yeah. prior? I mean, our, Clovis. You know, where do they fit into all of this? So perspective has a lot, a lot to do with this. And that gets glossed over, certainly perhaps not even brought up in the classrooms. Um, and that's worthy of, of correction. Uh, something I learned as a child, but uh, here's a correction. Uh, Queen Isabel of Spain sold the crown jewels to pay for Columbus's voyage. Nope. She did not. He was turned down uh, for this voyage by three other crowns, uh, Portugal, France, and England. Spain happened to be the fourth one, and they uh, did fund his journey, but they put up very little money, actually, from the Spanish treasury, and no, uh, Queen Isabella did not have to sell her jewels. Now, here's one. They also said no initially, and then later rechanged their mind and said yes. Yeah, I guess he hired a good lobbyist after a while, realizing, like, I, I think I need some PR help on this one. Columbus's ship were named the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, right? That's what we always hear. Yeah, that's what we hear. The original names were La Santa Clara, La Pinta, and La Santa Galega. G-A-L-L-E-G-A. What? How did that happen? Well, here we go. Um, It was common at the time for crews to give ships nicknames. And the the nicknames of the ships are Nina, Pinta, Santa Maria. Uh, Ah. La Santa Clara became La Nina, the girl. La Pinta became La Pintada, the painted one, or in other words, the prostitute. (laughs) And La Santa Galega became Maria Galante, the name of another prostitute. The church (laughs) censored uh, the names, but we remember them, you know, because of the cruise vernacular. (laughs) So the church had something to do with interfering with uh, the actual names of of the ships. Um, And then finally, and certainly the most controversial part is that Columbus being sort of revered and lauded and admired for his exploratory skills, savviness as a trader, temperance as a governor. Uh, that does not that does not jive. Uh, many historians argue that Columbus was not a great explorer. Um, his successes that he did have were accidents. He grossly miscalculated the size of the earth. Uh, he failed to set put upon he, he failed to set his feet upon India or East Asia for that matter. Um, he was not a great businessman, nor was he savvy, a savvy trader. He became a slave trader in a sense and an unscrupulous businessman taking advantage of native populations on the islands 
and the mainland shores of Central America. And as far as being the governor of these locations, there were many more failures than successes. Uh, for some of the colonies that he initially founded, he had left. And then when he, by the time he returned, the whole colonies were dead for, you know, various, re- various reasons. So they, they did not prosper. Whoa. He did not have things in control to, uh, to leave good existing colonies behind. He was uh, eventually they, taken back to Spain in chains, arrested yes. and put in jail for mismanaging his, his land. Yep, that's right. For mismanaging land and not treating, uh, you know, mistreating of, of the people. Uh, yeah. there was lots of cases of malnourishment, overwork, disease that got spread, um, which I don't directly hold Columbus per se direct, you know, accountable for. He was, he wasn't looking to spread disease. It just happened to be a fact that Europeans were immune to, had stronger immune systems. And when you start bringing your cattle and your livestock over, you're going to bring it to these people who have no protection, no immune protection against these things, and it's going to really, really decimate the populations. Well, they, had, also- they had acclimated immune systems. They just – not that they were objectively right. better. They were just they, – they, these were the bugs that their immune systems were already adapted to and – that's you right, know. because whole populations, you know, throngs yeah. of people were died in Europe on the way to, you know, getting to the point where you had people with immune systems that were uh, robust enough to uh, to handle some of this stuff. Yeah, he had a he had a tyrant streak to him. Columbus did. He cut off hands and limbs and tongues of people for speaking out against him. And it wasn't just to the natives to whom he's treated poorly, which we, you know, a lot of people feel is the most controversial part of him. He did it to the settlers, the 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 Europeans who also came over for these. Uh, at these colonies, he, he had very heavy-handed tactics, and like you said, Steve, he was recalled um, because of the mismanagement, mistreatment, and really bad governorship that 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 he was. Yeah, <laughs> he was a terrible governor. So, what's interesting about the Columbus controversy is that historians don't disagree about any of the facts, right? You know, we have, for example, his ship's log, right, his diary, right. essentially. So, we have lots of historical records of what actually happened. So there's a lot of controversy about the basic facts. We know that Columbus was thought he was going to India and China and he and he landed in this undiscovered country. So essentially he was a crank who got lucky, you know, basically and should have been dead right. by all rights. We know that he had he he thought that the natives uh were his to use as he saw fit. He captured them in in slavery, he treated them brutally. You know, he basically thought, oh, these are a lovely people. They'll make nice servants, he, say, he right. says, like in his diary. The friendly, good people. That- <laughs> yeah, they'll, <laughs> yes. they'll make, they'll make wonderful servants. And if they, if they get out of line, I'll just cut their hands off and show them, you know. Uh, so that's not controversial. We know that that happened as well. We know that, you know, he ended up failing as a governor and was, you know, arrested and brought back to Spain and changed. He then got out of prison and returned to the New World another time. We also know, though, that Columbus is, by doing what he did because of him, uh, and his voyages, he did open up a trade between the East and the West. He did open up trade between Europe and the New World. And that was enduring for good or for bad. All the effects that happened from that, you know, so mm-hmm. that is also pretty much, uh, uncontroversial fact as well. Um, the, what is controversial is how you interpret all of those things. Right. And, and that's subjective, you know, to an extent. So clearly what Columbus did was awful and terrible and evil by modern standards. Right. And you could probably also say by the standards of the day, he was a, a brutal guy. 
but it was accepted by the standards of the day. You know, slavery was accepted. There was a burgeoning slave trade. And he's like, oh, this is, look at this, all these new slaves, you know. So, you know, it's, it's easy to, to sit in the 21st century and be judgmental of somebody in the 15th century who was, had the morals and ethics of, of people in the 15th century. You know what I mean? So we, we ha- our, our views of him need to be tempered to some extent, you know, because of that. It doesn't mean that what he did wasn't bad. Doesn't mean that he wasn't a bad guy, even by you know his, the standards of his own time. But it, it is—he was a product of his time, and like we all are. So you know we can't don't take so much credit for just being a product of your time. You know what sure. I mean? Mm-hmm. How, where, where do things come in on balance? Is this—is he a symbol of European oppression and villainy against the New World? Is he a hero for being an explorer and opening up trade between Europe and the new world. Is he both of those things at the same time? You know, I think that I tend to approach these things that, yeah, people are complicated. People are good and bad. And you have to sort of, it is what it is. You know, he did what he did and it was complicated, but yeah, we certainly don't want to whitewash it and, and make him into this cartoon hero that he wasn't. But we also don't, I don't think we want to go too far the other way and just paint him as a cartoon villain either. Uh, he was a complicated man who did some really horrible things, you know, but also was, I think, courageous and ambitious and as a result changed the world. That is undeniable as well. So if we're in these kind of situations, it's important to see somebody in all their complexity and not any kind of cartoony version one way or the other. I agree. I do agree, however, though, that means not celebrating him as a hero only, right? And that's, I think, the real problem with Columbus Day, where it's just like, let's celebrate this guy as an explorer. Let's forget about all the other stuff that he did, you know, the whole slavery. <laughs> yeah. Bit. You know, yeah. And that, I, that's, that smacks of revisionist history, and, and that's really, really bad. And I know it kind of ruins a lot of the things, you know what I mean? It, it, because a lot of our culture is based upon just revering heroes, but then we learn like, okay, but history is more complicated than that. But I think that's just – we just have to get over that and t- we're going to take a more mature view of our own history and that means all of our heroes are going to be tainted. Right. Every single one because of they course. were all they were all people and they all were products of their time and they all had flaws and they all did some bad stuff. And that's just the way it is and I think we just need to remember them that way. And then also, you know, I do think it's really good to celebrate Native Americans as well, you know, and mm-hmm. having the, you know, combining it with sort of an Indigenous Peoples Day and saying this is all part of this history is, I think, the, the good approach. I, I definitely agree with that. All right, Bob, I understand we found half the missing matter in the universe. So, yeah, so there's a lot of shit missing in the universe and we found some of it. So that was my first, that was my first opener. The second one, upon further reflection, I said maybe I should just say this. Two separate groups of geeky astronomers claim to have found the missing baryonic matter in the universe. So now I'm not talking about dark energy or dark matter, which means, yes, there's another type of matter that's missing in the universe and it's regular matter. This is the stuff that emits light or at the very least it blocks light. Baryonic matter, and it's a good chunk of it's missing. I'm sorry to interrupt, but at this point, 
when I think of that missing matter, uh, I think of antimatter and antimatter from the from the Big Bang. No, and how it was? Are we talking about this? Like, no, no. we think that there more matter survived the matter antimatter. Uh, no, this is not. This is issue. not antimatter. Okay. This is not dark matter. This is just regular stuff. This is regular baryons are pretty much everything that you deal with every day. Protons and okay. neutrons. Or, okay. or more fundamentally, it's it's three quark composite particles. Protons have three quarks. Neutrons have three qu- quarks. All elements are made up of these. So the un- the visible universe is baryonic matter, and uh, this of course ignores p- particles like electrons, which are not baryons, but they are leptons. But that's just an aside. So so this is all just four point about four point six percent of the universe. Uh, the rest is dark matter and dark energy, uh, but it doesn't matter. It's still a beautiful, visible universe. So say it with me. This is my visible universe. There are many like it, but this one is mine. <laughs> no? All right, maybe, maybe later. Maybe we'll do it later. So, so theories tell us how much of this baryonic matter there should be, and we couldn't find it. It's like, where, where is this stuff? 50 to 90% was missing depending how you look you look through it uh, you look at it i think if the if you if you include all baryonic matter including black holes which might maybe not be might not be a great idea it's you know it's 90 percent um but if you don't include those it's like um or like if you include halos it's down to 50 percent. so it's still a huge chunk of the visible universe we cannot find even after you add up every star every galaxy every meatball it just did not add up we could not find it so uh, but there was hope. Simulations have been telling us for decades that this this missing matter can be found in these tenuous filaments that connect galaxies together. But the the weird thing is that that almost didn't even matter though because we still couldn't find it. It was just so, you know, cold matter like that just won't emit any radiation um, that are any that any telescopes that we know can detect. You may be thinking, why does finding it matter so much? Well, first off, the hello science. That's your first reaction. The second one is that um, you know if it's truly there or not there, or if it's even if it's there but bigger than we think or smaller than we think, that's still very, very important because that means that our theories are wrong. It, it means that our simulations are, have gotten something wrong. And then, you know, that means we need to, fi- we need to fix this stuff if we're, gonna, if we're ever going to simulate and, under this, and understand the universe more fully. Um, plus, you know, an incomplete theory is a sad theory, right? You don't want to have a sad theory. You want to have happy theories. So this is the problem. Uh, and this is exactly what the two research teams seem to have solved. And they relied on science, of course. In this case, it, they relied on the Sunyev-Zeldovich effect. Uh, this is a phenomenon that causes photons left over from the uh, cosmic microwave background radiation to scatter into slightly different, slightly higher energies when they pass by uh, electrons in the neighborhood. And in this case, those electrons were in the faint gas connecting the galaxies. So I find it very ironic and, and pleasing that that the leptons are instrumental in helping us find the missing baryons, which is kind of interesting. So, But that's not even the clever stuff. That's not even the clever bit. The clever bit, though, was what, how they actually found, saw this signal. They took thousands upon thousands upon thousands. I think one team took a million images of galaxy pairs, and they stacked them up. They put one on top of the other. You know, they scaled them and sized them so they kind of were oriented properly. And they stacked them up one on top of the other on top of the other. And each image that is added to that stack amplifies the signal 
a little bit, a skosh, tiny, tiny amount. But when you're dealing with when you're dealing with so many images, that tiny, tiny amplification builds up and builds up, and eventually, you're, we were able or they were able to detect the faint effect on the filaments caused by the Sunyev Zeldovich um, effect. So both teams then claim that they found uh, a density of baryonic matter above the background, above what you would find in, uh, you know, in extragalactic space. Now, that density is only three to six times more dense. So think about that. You know, you're looking at the space in between galaxies, and which is pretty rarefied, right? I mean, what is it, like uh, one particle per cubic centimeter? I mean, it's like better than the best vacuum that we could create on on earth i think it's even less dense than that so what they found was only three to six times more dense than that you know which is still not dense at all but it's detectable if you use this method and everything that they found matches our theories as predicted so there's no huge anomalies um in our theories and that's good and maybe in some ways it's bad because there's no new physics you know that we're going to find uh, with this specific uh, thing, but I mean, but occasionally they, we have to find that we were right. You know, what I mean, everything can't be up turning what we thought we knew upside down, right? And this is all, and this is large scale stuff. This is you know the cosmos. This is astrophysics. It's not we're not talking particles or quantum mechanics or anything like that. So yeah, so it makes sense that uh, you know the, the big picture, our our big picture theories are are correct, and they are, which is fantastic. Um, and I, I love the fact that there's two separate teams um, that, that that came to very similar conclusions, which of co- course always strength, strength, uh, strengthens the theory because that that's one of the hallmarks of science is replication. So it's already been replicated in a sense. At least, yeah, at least we found all the regular matter. You know, yeah, I think it's right. interesting. That most people didn't even realize that we were missing half of it. You know. But right. we really, Which we is, really, yeah. we weren't really. We kind of knew it was there. It had to be there. It all made sense. We just did. We really just needed to figure out a way to see it, and that's what they did. And it and it matched what we what we knew we were going to see. Yeah, right. And it's it's interesting because the dark matter. You know, we know we see the effect of dark matter. We just don't know what the hell it is. The baryonic matter. We know what it was. We just couldn't quite see it. So, uh, yeah. kind of an interesting yeah. difference. Well, Jay, it's who's that noisy time. Last week, I played this noisy. What is it? Hmm, Something electronic. Uh, Something uh, (laughs) (laughs) computer-related. Bob, any other... uh... Very generic. A dictaphone. Yes. So first I will say that nobody got it. And I, I really thought that I was going to get a wash with people guessing this correctly because uh, I gave a very strong clue. I'll tell you some of the things that people thought it was. I had a listener named Austin who wrote in and said, I thoroughly enjoy the show. And that noisy sounded a lot like what would happen if you used an auto-tune processor to measure and alter the pitch of wind howling. Whoa. Sounds like a lot like Kanye West. Um, that's not correct, but I thought that was funny. It's a very specific wrong answer. Yes. we got a couple of other guesses here. One person said, this is Jim Kelly. He said, it's the sound of DNA converted into a waveform on an Atari 800 with the expanded 48K of RAM. Close, but not even close. <laughs> so again, no winner this week, guys. But what the heck is it? That is an audio-visual rendering 
So, because there is a vid, you could see a video of this as well, but the audio is much more interesting. It's an audio visual rendering of liquid water, and the sound relates huh? to the interaction of the tagged water molecule. Because there's one mo- water molecule that we're following, and it's colored blue in a, in a field of red, and it's essentially its interaction with all the other water molecules. Hmm. So every time you hear a tone, it corresponds to water on water interaction. You know, between the energy between the molecules. Cool. Very cool. Now, I have a new noisy this week, and this new noisy is, um, again, some of you might find it to be very familiar. I want some specifics on what it is, but just take a listen to this. By the way, this was sent in by Julian Goodwin. Thank you, Julian. No light speed. <laughs> Heaven! <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that sound effect was taken by something in the real world. And that's yeah. my only clue that you're going to get on this week's Who's That Noisy. So if you think you know what it is, or if you heard anything that's really cool that you think I might want to use on the show, you can email me at WTN at TheSkepticsGuide.org. Cool. Uh, we have one email this week, but before we get to that, we have a couple of announcements uh, Jay already mentioned that uh, Jay Bob and I are doing a Alpha Quadrant 6, which is a uh, Star Trek Discovery after review show. So go to our Facebook page. It's simply Facebook slash Alpha Quadrant 6. You'll see our previous three episodes. The new ones drop at 930 right after uh, Discovery. Right, you know, Discovery drops at 830 on Sunday night. And we watch it. And then we do the review show starting at 930. Also, so in two weeks... We are going to be at SciCon. Las Vegas. Las Vegas, yep. So October 26th to 29th, SciCon Las Vegas. I'm sure you can still get tickets and go if you haven't, uh, if you haven't booked it yet. It's going to be a great conference, lots of great speakers. Uh, but this, uh, announcement is to let you know that we will be doing a private recording. Um, so if you are going to be there, or if you're just going to be in Las Vegas, you can come to our private recording on Friday, October 27th, beginning at 10 p.m. Uh, the exact location will be announced on site. Uh, if you want to attend that show, it's $75 per ticket. There's limited seating, so um, and we, we do tend to sell these things out. Uh, email us with the subject line, Private Psycon. Uh, you can pay us by going to our website and going to PayPal. Uh, we need your, your name and some contact information so that we can text you or call you in order to tell you the location of the recording. So that's just in two weeks, October, uh, 27th, again at 10 p.m. And Jay, you got another announcement as well. So any listeners out there that can help the SGU, we are looking for a software development company who can fully manage our web properties. And this includes several WordPress sites, blogs. We have custom software. We have you know hosting needs. Overall, we want someone that can, can do everything for us. And of course, we're willing to pay for these services. And we want someone that's awesome. <laughs> So right, yeah, right now the the company we're using to host and manage our websites can't handle the amount of work that we have for them. We're outgrowing them, 
And so we're looking to migrate over to a company that could manage all of our online websites. We have uh, formally outgrown our previous company and are looking for a new partner. So if you're interested, want more information, and would like to talk to us about this, you can email us at info at theskepticsguide.org and put the subject software development company in the header so we know what this is about. All right. So we got one email. This one comes from, uh, I believe the name is pronounced Teague, T-I-G-H-E. What do you think? Uh, from okay. Los Angeles. I'll go with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he writes, hi, guys, I have a random question I'm hoping you can help me with. I have an insulated steel thermos made by Yeti. Best insulated cup I've ever used, hands down. I have no affiliation with them, FYI. If I put hot coffee in it, no warmth registers on the outside. The cup's insulating design is working as intended. The temperature delta here is roughly 80 degrees, 150 degrees coffee. 70 degrees ambient temperature. That's obviously Fahrenheit. That's pretty impressive in my book. But if I put an iced drink in, the outside of the cup becomes pretty cool pretty quickly. It still keeps the drink pretty cold, but I'm confused as to why it does not seem to be insulating as well. Here, the temperature delta is only about 40 degrees, 70 ambient, 30 drink. So it seems to be insulating much better with a warm liquid, but I just can't make sense of this. I don't see why it would matter. Energy is energy after all, I would think. It's the temperature delta that matters more. Thoughts? My only guess is that the solid ice contacting the cup's inner wall is cooling it down more than expected. Thanks, guys. Love the show, by the way. Keep up the good work. Very interesting question. We love these nerdy physics questions. Um, I don't know that we have a definitive answer to this question. <laughs> no, uh, because I don't. <laughs> but we can start by talking a little bit about the physics of thermoses. So this all has to do, of course, with heat transfer. How does heat get from one place to another? There's basically three mechanisms. Uh, one mechanism is conduction. Heat physically moves through a substance. That's conduction. You know, different substances conduct heat to different degrees. Then there's convection. Convection is when a liquid, like a, a liquid or a gas, something that flows, physically Fluid. moves, right? So the hotter stuff is physically moving flowing you know through the substance to somewhere else uh and then the third one is radiation which is a a a hot object will radiate away energy in electromagnetic waves right as electromagnetic energy so radiation convection conduction those are the three ways but for heat it's it's infrared we're talking infrared well it depends on how hot what the temperature is right of the body you know uh, it's millions of degrees it probably is not infrared right yeah, but what we would what we would call heat would it would would be infrared. Yes, yeah. For if you're talking about your coffee, then yeah. So yeah, so a thermos, if you you have what's called a vacuum insulated thermos, which is um, the most common type, and those are the ones that really work. So essentially, you have an inner cavity that holds the liquid, and then that is surrounded by a vacuum chamber, except for like the very top where it connects to the outside. And then there's usually a gasket at the bottom to hold it into place. But everywhere else, it's it's surrounded by vacuum. And then there's the outer container, right? So, of course, a vacuum doesn't allow for any convection because there's nothing to move. And it doesn't conduct very well at all. It doesn't conduct at all either. So the conduction is only going to be going through the points that are actually touching to the outside. Uh, it still allows for radiation, however. So they also, uh, you know, a good thermos will also have a silvered inner chamber so that it reflects mm-hmm. 
the radiation back into the liquid. So it's preventing all three forms of heat transfer, radiation, convection, and conduction. Uh, it's minimizing those, those three. And so if something is, you know, if you put hot coffee in there, obviously it's going to keep that heat in very, very well. It's the rate of, of heat loss to the environment is going to be extremely slow. And so it'll stay hot for a long time. Cold, it's the same thing. So the question is, why would there be an asymmetry between a hot substance and a cold substance? And I, the, I couldn't find a definitive authoritative answer online. I did find facts that may, may help us think about what the answer might be, but I couldn't find, uh, anything definitive. So it's possible, it's possible that this is something quirky, uh, unique to Teague and not a general phenomenon. Uh, so we would need to explore that further. So it should be fairly symmetrical. The, the, what I did find was the, the opposite of what he experiences. There were lots of people who were explaining why a thermos may work better with cold than with hot. And that is what Teague zeroed in on. That's the temperature differential, right? Because the greater the differential, the more heat will, uh, will transfer. So if you have something that is 70 degrees or 80 degrees warmer than the ambient temperature, that should cool down faster than something which is only 20 or 30 degrees cooler than uh, the ambient temperature will heat up, right? But that's the opposite of what Teague is saying. So I do have one hypothesis. Well, other than that Teague is just crazy and wrong, but assuming that his his subjective yeah, yeah. That was That was correct, my hypothesis. That was it. Yeah, you were going with that one. <laughs> but let's assume that his subjective report is it's accurate. My hypothesis is that, that his thermos is broken. Uh, but the, essentially, <laughs> the extreme temperatures can change because of the, the thermal expansion effect, right? So maybe when the inner chamber is contracting, when you put something that's really, really cold in there, it's losing its uh, seal in some way and – or maybe the, you know what I mean, and then that's causing the the that's causing the vacuum to fail, or it's causing some of the fluid to leak out into the outer chamber. I don't know, uh, but that's not with with heat that right. So when when things are cold, it contracts and that can open up openings. When you when it gets hot, oh. it expands and that could seal openings. So maybe with hot things, it's sealing better than with cold things. Yeah. But it's probably not a vacuum breach because once it's breached, I mean, that's it. It's gone. Yeah, right. Or if it were, it wouldn't be working as well as he says it's working. Right. But uh, the other, the only other thing I could think of is that so the, even though you know he as he says heat is heat, but uh, then the temperature differential should really be the only thing that matters. However, there may be an asymmetry in the direction that heat travels. So right, because when you have a hot substance, you're keeping heat in. When you have a cold substance, you're keeping heat out. So maybe heat can get into the thermos better than it can get out of the thermos. And the That's interesting. Um, yeah, so I'm just trying to think just, just just conceptually that that's an asymmetry. And so maybe the the radiation is the it may be where it's different. Maybe it it reflects radiation back in better than it reflects radiation out. Conduction and convection should be the same in either direction, right? So those are my two hypotheses, either think. that and the thermos is actually is literally functioning better because the heat expansion is sealing it better, or there's an asymmetry in the way it's ra- it's blocking radiation from one direction versus the other mm. direction. We, we may need to consider another option, and that would be a coding problem in the s- simulated universe that we're living in, 
Granted, yeah, low probability, but can't <laughs> ignore that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's an anomaly in the coding program of the Matrix. Yeah, it's, that's possible. It's a way to break out. <laughs> way to think outside there. the box, Bob. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an interesting little mystery to try to think about how what could be a possible answer and to understand how thermoses work, you know. All right, guys, let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fiction. Tilicious. I knew you were going to say that. You did? Um, and then uh, I challenged my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake Rooney. Do you know why I was going to say that? Yep. The fake Rooney. Uh, yeah. Fake Rooney. Right. Yep. I have to come up with new uh, euphemisms for, for fake. And this week I have a theme. You're going to like this theme. So a whole bunch of battery related news items dropped today. Oh, boy. Oh, here we go. Oh, boy. So I was just flooding my science news, you know, light site. Oh. So I'm like, all right, you know, whatever. Here they are. Let's go through a bunch of battery. I know we we talk a lot about battery tech, tech and there's a lot of news items, but there was just too many of them for me to ignore. So here are three battery-related news items. Are you ready? Positively. Okay. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> all right, here we go. Item number one. Engineers have built a usable nano battery using waste graphite that has sufficient energy density to run a pacemaker for 20 years. Item number two, researchers have developed an air-breathing flow battery usable for grid storage that costs 20% as much as lithium-ion batteries with nearly as much energy density. And item number three, a new analysis finds that there are enough raw materials available to meet projected demand for lithium-ion battery production for at least 15 years. Evan, you get the wise-ass reward of going first. Because I said positively? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm not trying to discourage you from being funny, but you, you know, <laughs> you, your, head, your head popped up. It's going to get chopped off. I guess it did. All right. The first one. Engineers have built a usable nanobattery using waste graphite that has sufficient energy density to run a pacemaker for 20 years. Um, well, do you need um, how much? I guess the question is, and I wish I knew this, how much energy is required to operate a pacemaker and for how long? That would help me a lot. But I don't have that information. <laughs> Maybe not. Because how are you going to squeeze that much energy out of something so, so small like that? Um, size matters, I think. Uh, the second one, researchers have developed an air-breathing flow battery usable for grid storage that costs 20% as much as lithium-ion batteries, with nearly as much energy density. So one-fifth the cost, roughly the same energy density, and it's an air-breathing flow battery. Usable for grid storage. Grid storage. Um, okay, I tend to. I think this one's going to be right. Uh, this is very good news. I mean, you know, twenty percent the price. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. And air breathing flow battery. I don't think that's a problem. I don't see anything wrong there. I think it's very good news. And then the last one is the analysis that finds there are enough raw materials available to meet projected demand for lithium-ion battery production for at least 15 years. Well, uh, was there a worry of a shortage of material for lithium-ion battery production? I, I did. 
if there was, I didn't know about it. So this one makes it seem like this one's surprising that we have 15 years worth of raw materials. So I'll say yeah, this one sounds, I don't, I'm not detecting anything wrong with this one. The one I have the problem with, I guess, is the nano battery. <sighs> because, yeah, wow, the energy density problem there. I don't, I don't see the nano battery coming up with that much. It's not enough energy density there. Nope. I'll say nano battery is fiction. Okay, Bob. Yeah, let me just knock off the uh, the third one about the um, fifteen year, fifteen years before we're in trouble uh, with lithium ion batteries. Yeah, I mean I've heard similar things about you know about problems uh, with supplies for a lithium ion battery. So yeah, that sounds about right. The other two are the ones that's kind of knocking me out here. The nano battery. I mean I don't know. I don't I don't think we've ever had a science or fiction item with the word nano in it that was false. So. I'm not sure I should say this one was – This is, I don't think I want to go against that. Bob, that thought did actually cross my mind, believe it or not. I so right, So the too. second one's got a lot of things going against it in terms of being improbable. Um, Air-breathing flow battery. What the hell is that? I'm not even sure what the hell that is. It sounds a little too convenient. Usable for grid storage. Or grid storage, really? A battery for grid storage? Grid storage, 20% is lithium ion with nearly as much energy density. Oh, come on. That's just like holy grail of batteries, cool kind of. Um, that's just like too good. That's just like way too many things. So uh, screw it. Uh, the nano battery, you know, maybe, I don't know, damn, 20 years. I mean, maybe it's more of a fa- of a function of how little energy the um, the pacemaker needs. You know, think about it. That's pretty tiny. Maybe it's doing some energy harvesting, um, but that's nah, that that wouldn't be fair if it was actually doing that. But I mean, so yeah, I'm just not going to vote against nano. So I'll say that the um, number two there, the air breathing flow battery is fiction. And Jay? Yeah, the first one about the nano battery, it's, you know, I understand why Evan picked it because it sounds like, you know, 20 years is a long time. I was under the impression that they recharged those batteries that they implanted in people that had pace, that have pacemakers. Um, so this one would say, hey, we can run this thing for 20 years. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, and I'm not sure where, why you're calling it a nano battery, which is another... Because it's very small? I don't know. I don't know if the battery itself is small or the internal structure has some type of nano properties to it. Yeah. That's, that's what I would think. That's probably um, a good assumption. My gut is telling me something strange about this. Like, is there like some way that it's collecting energy from the environment? I don't know. Maybe that's too futuristic. Uh, the second one here about uh, the air breathing flow battery usable for grid storage. It costs 20% as much as lithium ion batteries with nearly as much energy density. I don't like this one. I agree with Bob on this one. I, I would agree with the third one here that we're we're not able to uh, to meet the future demands of lithium-ion battery production. That sounds somewhat familiar to me. So I'm going to go with the second one here is the fake, this one about the uh, air-breathing flow battery. Okay, so you all agree with the third one, so we'll start there. A new analysis finds that there are enough raw materials available to meet projected demand for lithium-ion battery production for at least 15 years. You all think that one is science. By the way, what do you think are the uh, needed raw materials? Uh, Rare earth materials, right? So for lithium ion yeah. batteries, there are two, two that are the bottleneck. So if you, in other lithium words, there and, are, and are ions, lithium and <laughs> what's, the, what's the other one? Like platinum, <laughs> not platinum, but uh, no. Oh, what the hell was it? That's the cobalt, lithium uh, and cobalt. Was it cobalt? No. This one is science. 
They said that, yeah, even with yeah. projected increases in demand for lithium-ion batteries, there's enough lithium and cobalt in order to meet that demand for that increased production. However, they said that there, they, this would require an increase in production mining infrastructure, and there could be bottlenecks. So we're not going to run out, but we may not increase the production fast enough to meet demand. It may become a limiting factor on manufacturing lithium-ion batteries if we don't keep ahead of the curve in terms of like building more mines, you know. But there's enough of it there. Beyond that, they didn't make any statements, but, you know, eventually we could run into difficulty. You know, the, the ability to produce these things may be outstripped by demand. That's why, like, when people say, oh, yeah, we're just going to have lithium-ion batteries be grid storage. Like, really? You know how many batteries that would be? And, you know, I think then that the analysis would totally change, right? If we're going to try to build lithium-ion grid storage batteries, then that's terawatts of storage. That, that may ex- then exceed... The, the world supply of lithium and cobalt. Cobalt's interesting. That's a, that's an interesting. Most of the cobalt that we get is mined along with nickel, and the nickel is what's paying for the mining. The cobalt is just sort of a side product. Yeah, it's made of baryons, you know. Yeah, they're all made of baryons. Yeah, we need to make a baryonic battery. That <laughs> you, could, you could market a baryonic battery, and it would could just be like a regular, you know, ever ready or whatever. Yeah. But it's, it'd make it sound really cool, you know. It would be cool. Lepton transfer energy. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> no, leptonic. 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 <laughs> leptonic transfer. <laughs> I'll pay okay. triple for that. All right. Let's go back to number one. Engineers have built a usable nano battery using waste graphite that has sufficient energy density to run a pacemaker for 20 years. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Bob and Jay. Yeah, maybe not anymore, though. But hey, okay. come on. Bob and Jay, you think this one is science, and this say one it, say it. is the fiction. You it is the fiction. Good job, Evan. Wow. <laughs> but I okay, I still don't know how much energy it takes to run a pacemaker, though. So, so I actually just threw in the word nano there for that exact reason because I re- <laughs> realized it's I've never had a nano fiction. I figured I would get some money oh on this. You had the same totally. Oh, I totally. hate you so much right now. <laughs> Oh, totally got us, Bob. You totally got him on the pattern. Uh, All right. So this is based on a real news item, but very loosely. So what they, they did design a battery using waste graphite. So when you make a steel, um, there's graphite, uh, as a waste product. So yeah, so it's called, it's called Kish graphite. It's basically just a waste product, you know, steel production, but it has the physical characteristics that they, that they want to exploit for this battery. Because it has it has the right sized flakes that will hold the electrons, you know, that hold the the ions that they want. So they're basically flipping the lithium ion battery um, instead of using the graphite at the cathode. They're going to use it at the anode. Yeah. So in a lithium ion battery, the electrons, the metal ions, move back and forth between the cathode and the anode. But what they want, so again, this is a part of the same goal of designing batteries using cheaper, more abundant materials. Because, you know, lithium and cobalt, yeah, you know, while we might have enough for the next 15 years, if we if we increase production fast enough, that the, the supply lines of those materials is, are not going to be they're, – they're expensive and they, they may not always, you know, meet demand. So if you could make it out of something that's a lot more abundant and a lot cheaper, 
then you know that may make grid storage a viable option. So they're trying to use like the really really common elements like ma- magnesium and aluminum, right? Remember, aluminum is as common as dirt. If you can figure out how to make a battery out of that, that would be great. Sulfur is another one, you know, and waste products. So graphite's great material. So using natural graphite it can work as well. But some forms of graphite are like in a fine powder and that wouldn't work. You need the bigger flakes. But this Kish graphite, would be, which is the waste product, would be perfect. So they were able to design a battery using this kind of system, using just the Kish graphite and cheaper um, materials. And they were able to get it to function. They're, it's only producing – it has very low energy density. That's the, that's the, the potential deal killer here. It's like now we have all we have to do is get the energy density up to a usable amount, you know. Uh, but who knows if that will happen? This is one of those throwaway new, uh, battery news items where, yeah, they figured out how to make a battery out of different materials, but again, unless it has all of those properties at the same time, it's never going to be ready for prime time. Um, so I don't know if this is not one where I think necessarily we'll get anywhere. We'll see. You know, they have to get to characteristics that will be useful in some function. So that's why I just made it the fiction. So the uh, running a pacemaker for 20 years, so right now, actually, uh, existing pacemaker batteries last for an average of about 6 to 10 years, um, with 5 to 15 being the range. So 20 would be more than any existing pacemakers that are out there. However, with current technology, if you just made the battery bigger, you know, you could, <laughs> you could, <laughs> right? You could make, you could make a pacemaker battery that could last 25 years. Uh, it's just bigger than, you know, we would want it to be. So making a, a, more, a smaller battery that could, you know, be the size of batteries that are currently used in pacemakers, but last even a little bit longer, like this would be a 25% longer or 33% longer, then that's significant. You know, going 20 years instead of 15 years, if you're 50 and you need a pacemaker, you'd probably want that freaking thing to last, you know, as long as possible. Uh, and they do have to basically remove it and swap it out when it gets to the end of its lifetime. So... You know, it would be great if we can go to 40 years or 50 years and basically a lifetime, you know, so you would never have to remove the thing. Uh, that would be great. But this technology has nothing to do with the scale. This is more big, heavy batteries. This would be more, you know, the, the, the waste graphite one are not nano anything. They're not nano batteries. This is just, Kish. yeah, it's just for, um, there'd be more something that you would use for like a grid storage. Okay. All of this means that researchers have developed an air breathing flow battery usable for grid storage that costs 20% as much as lithium ion batteries with nearly as much energy density is very cool science. Again, you know, I wow. looked very carefully to find, all right, what's the, what's the rub here? What's the deal killer? What's the thing they're glossing over? And I went to the, even to the original study, but then if, you know, it gets a little technical for me, admittedly, but so we'll see, you know, what, uh, other people say about this over time, you know, when, when experts really start to rip it apart. But, you know, the details all sound good so far. Uh, so again, they're trying to make an alternative to lithium ion batteries using cheaper materials. Uh, in this one, they were trying to use sulfur. Now, sulfur is an interesting material because it's very energy dense. So sulfur could potentially be a good energy-dense medium for batteries. The problem is that no one has been able to find a reversible reaction with sulfur, and therefore sulfur-based batteries would not be rechargeable, which means they would basically be worthless for most applications, right? They would be okay for disposable batteries, but that's about it. So uh, MIT researchers 
somewhat by accident hit upon a, re- a reversible reaction, though, that just involves oxidizing with air. Ah. Yeah, so that's why it's an air – it's a flow battery and, it, and it's an air breathing because it, that's part of the reaction. So oxygen flows into the cathode causing the anode to discharge electrons to an external current. Oxygen flows out, sends electrons back to the anode, recharging the battery. So it doesn't produce any waste. There's no carbon dioxide or anything. And it just exhales oxygen, essentially. And it did produce a a reversible reaction. They were able to do many, many, you know, charge and discharge cycles. They didn't say exactly how many. So maybe that's the rub. You know, we'll, again, every time they don't mention explicitly a detail, you have to wonder, was that going to be the limiting factor? But it should cost about twenty to thirty dollars per kilowatt hour, where lithium ion batteries cost about a hundred dollars per kilowatt hour. So it's about twenty percent of a lithium ion battery. And it's made from cheaper materials. It's they said it's almost has almost the energy density of lithium ion. So if it's obviously if it's twenty percent as expensive and has eighty to ninety percent of the energy density, that density that's still a good exchange. You should basically you want to like how much is it gonna cost Per terawatt, you know, like if we're going to use this as grid storage, when we start to get to the terawatt scale, you know, how much is this costing per gigawatt uh, of of energy storage that it's going to have? We'll see. You know, these kind of batteries, you know, if you think if they're cheap enough, would it get to the point? And again, when we're starting to think about grid storage, I mean, this could be – imagine like if every house had one of these things buried next to it. You know what I mean? Like right now, a lot of houses – That's what I'm waiting for. yeah, if you use oil heat, a lot of people have their oil tank buried in their yard. That's very common practice. Uh, you have this huge, big oil tank, you know, just buried next to your house. Yeah, good luck burying an oil tank uh, these days, regulations. Yeah, you can't do that anymore, but some older places still have them. Yeah, that used to be the standard, you know. Yeah, yeah I guess they just. Too many environmental problems. Yeah, they're worried about the oil yeah. leaking out or whatever. Mm-hmm. It seems like that could be dealt with just by making, just regulating the tanks themselves. But in any case, you could. Have a battery either, whatever, in some kind of facility in your basement or in your garage or, you know, if you, if it is environmentally safe to bury, just buried next to your garage or whatever. And then imagine if that could store, you know, a couple of weeks of energy, you know, for your house. And then that could, you could, that you could use that in two ways, right? So one is if you had intermittent production, like let's say you have solar on your roof. Obviously, you could store the solar energy when you're making it, and then you draw upon it when you need it. So it would make intermittent energy sources viable. Even if you didn't, though, you could buy electricity off-peak when it's really cheap and use it during the peak when the energy is more expensive, right? So you could use it for peak shaving, basically, and that would help you, and it would also help stabilize the energy grid because you're, you know, you're flattening out demand. So I wonder how many people would need to have a battery like that as part of their house in order to like really have a huge impact on the stability of the grid and, and flattening out the peak. The other thing is that this, with this battery is that it has a lot more energy density uh, than pumped hydro, like 500 times the energy density of pumped hydro. You know, Damn. It's 500 times less space than having a hydroelectric plant. But – uh, and it could actually compete with pumped hydro for cost effectiveness, for efficiency, and it's better in terms of space. And it also has no regional limitations. You could pretty much put them anywhere. You know what I mean? So it could be more versatile than pumped hydro. 
So this guy, you know, I do think it is very likely that if anybody, if we can hit upon the right reaction, you know, the right battery technology where we could make big batteries cheaply, that could be the ultimate solution to grid storage and to, you know, really making the transition to intermittent renewable energy sources, you know. All right. So good job, Evan. Well, thanks. Yeah. Uh, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> but you got a quote for us? This quote came courtesy of longtime SGU listener Richard Drum. Thanks, Richard. I like this quote. Richard! I'm not very optimistic about people's ability to change the way they think, but I am fairly optimistic about their ability to detect the mistakes of others. And that was written by Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. I'd like to put it, I'd like to borrow the words of Stephen Pinker. I've called him the world's most influential living psychologist. I believe it's true. His central message could not be more important. Namely, that human reason left to its own devices is apt to engage in a number of fallacies and systematic errors. So if we want to make better decisions in our personal lives and as a society, we ought to be aware of these biases and see workarounds. Yeah, really is the guy who developed the idea of heuristics, you know, these rules of thumb mm -hmm. that we that we use and, and did a lot of seminal research in terms of these cognitive biases. Absolutely. We, we talk about his work all the time. Um, really incredible. Tried to get him on the show, actually, Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman, he would be fantastic, but he's basically retired and not doing it, and he, not doing that yeah. sort of stuff anymore. So oh, we just bummer. caught him a little bit too late in his career. Yeah. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure, Shane, Steve. Steve. Thanks, Steve. Oh, I, I want to say one other thing before I say next. Mm -hmm. I wanted to also point out because people have asked us to do this in the past. Next week, we are going to review the movie Blade Runner twenty forty nine. So if you. Uh, Want to watch the movie before our show drops next week? You'll you'll be able to listen to the review because otherwise, you know, our reviews are always full of spoilers galore. So, heads up, we're going to be reviewing that the uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine on next week's show. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.